So we're in 1 Corinthians. And last time we got started in chapter 2. And just to sort of remind you of what we're doing, 1 Corinthians is a letter, and it's written to believers in the city of Corinth. Corinth is sort of the San Francisco of the Mediterranean. So all of the stereotypical things you think about San Francisco, you could also think about Corinth, and you'd probably be pretty accurate. He's writing a pastoral letter, which is to say he's writing a letter to correct things in the church and so forth. It's not specifically a theological letter, and quite frankly, I don't believe that Paul wrote any theological letters. I mean, he sort of skips around in theology, but he's really dealing with church governance kinds of problems. The first problem that he addresses, and it takes up the first four chapters of the book, is factionalism within the church. You had several teachers come through. Paul's come through, Apollos has come through, Peter has come through. Come through is perhaps the wrong word. There are people who have heard the teaching of Peter and Apollos and Paul. Those guys may or may not have visited Corinth, but somebody traveling from Jerusalem to Rome stops in Corinth and says, I just heard this great preacher, and you know, this is what he says. So what happens is that there's factionalism, where they've sort of divided into camps. So that's the first problem that Paul is dealing with. In chapter 2, he starts off by saying that anybody can come through with a glib line of pattern and a three-day pass and tell you anything. And you shouldn't believe people who are just glib. You should believe people who have demonstrations of the power of the Holy Spirit. Not anything wrong with teaching, but that's sort of the gold standard. And he says, I came through and I taught you and I was humble about it and I had demonstrations of the power of the Spirit. And if you haven't seen that from any of these other folks, take their message with some salt. That's the first five verses of chapter 2. We did 6, 7, and 8, and that's where we stopped last time. So I want to start with 6, and we'll take a run and get on past it tonight. Different Bible New Testament writers write to different audiences. So Paul has the Gentile franchise. Peter had the Jewish franchise. So if you read Peter's letters, they are written to... Jews or Hebrews in the diaspora. So he assumes that they know something about the scriptures. And he just sort of launches off. Paul, writing to dumb Gentiles, cannot assume that they know anything. Because certainly they have manifestations of the Holy Spirit. You know, again, we use the story of Peter and Cornelius, where Peter went to Cornelius's house because God told him to, and while he was there, the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius. God chose to drop the Holy Spirit on Cornelius. Didn't ask Peter, didn't ask anybody's permission, just did it. But Cornelius and his household are Gentiles, which means that they are not schooled in the Scriptures. Sort of like being used with a cattle prod. They've got the Holy Spirit, and they're all full of power, but they don't know anything. So, Paul, in his letters, is dealing with people who are enthusiastic. They have the Holy Spirit. 
They are in the Baptist sense saved. All of those things. But they don't know much. Peter, on the other hand, can assume that they know the scriptures. And of course, we just finished Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrews who know the scriptures. So he can write a different letter than what Paul has to write. So now, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Remember, he's just gone through a riff now of saying, don't depend on human wisdom. Depend on manifestations of the power of God. And so he's saying, yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And remember, we camped there last time and cross-referenced that with Ephesians. And what I asserted at that point is God is dealing with a rebellion in heaven. And in any kind of a military operation, you don't tell your enemy what you're going to do. So there's stuff God has kept as mysteries to himself that are only revealed as the time is right. So that's where we spent our time last time. So now, 9, But as it is written, what no eye has seen or ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's a quotation from Isaiah 64. And it's kind of a non sequitur. So let's go back to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. So Isaiah here is writing and he is asking for God to show himself powerful as he did in times of old. Of old from Isaiah's perspective. Verse 3. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. So we're talking probably about Sinai. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, and we sin. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? So this is a lamentation, if you will. Remember, Isaiah is writing at the time that the northern kingdom goes into exile under the Assyrians. And one of the things that happens to the northern kingdom, of course, is they fall into idolatry. And what Isaiah is lamenting here is, God we have sinned, we have been in our sins a long time. You in your graciousness have shown yourself strong in the past, and I presume you will again. Back to 1 Corinthians now. So he's saying in verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now, I find that to be a non sequitur. I do not see where that particular quotation 
fits in the flow of the letter. Except, back up and try and put it in perspective, perhaps imperfectly. Remember, he's dealing with Gentiles who don't know nothing. They are conceited in their wisdom because each one of them has found a teacher that he really likes and is holding on to that teacher and is puffing himself up over his fellows in the church who do not have the same teacher. Well, Paul says this. Yeah, but Apollo said that. And, you know, you have this kind of a dispute. So what Paul is saying is, you guys don't know nothing. There is wisdom that God has that is hidden even from the powers that rule the world. And furthermore, nobody knows what God has got in store for those who love him. So he's saying, you guys are not wise, you're not really ready for wisdom, yet there may be some of you who are mature, and to you I will give some wisdom. I think that's what's being said. As I say, I find the quotation kind of a non sequitur. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So what he's saying here is, you guys are depending on human wisdom. You're grasping a hold of some teacher that you think is really good, and you're holding yourselves as wise. And what Paul is saying is, God's wisdom is revealed to us by his spirit. An example being the business about the crucifixion of Yeshua, bringing the Gentiles in. So the wisdom of God is spiritually revealed. It is not discerned by the wisdom of men, which you guys are depending on. And obviously, the Spirit of God knows the mind of God, just as your spirit knows your mind. Verse 11, For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. Remember, this is all a polemic against getting puffed up because you have heard a teacher that you like and you think that you're puffed up above your neighbors. What Paul is saying is, you guys are not wise. Anything you know about God is something that is revealed by the Spirit of God. Nobody knows the mind of God except the Spirit of God, and certainly we are not capable of knowing the mind of God in the same way the Spirit knows the mind of God. However, the Spirit does give us wisdom and knowledge, albeit certainly not at the same level as the wisdom and knowledge of God himself. But you can see how this would lead to spiritual lone rangerism. Spiritual lone rangers are those who believe that they have some revelation about a piece of scripture or about something in the Bible. And if you don't see that particular thing the way they do, they won't be in fellowship with you. And so you wind up with these little pods, usually a single family, off by themselves on their little compound, going merrily off into the weeds because they can't find anybody that they think is worthy of being in fellowship with them. I don't 
know that it's more common among messianics than in other groups, but one of the things about messianics is we tend to like knowing stuff. We're very Greek in that way. Specifically, we kind of like knowing things that the Sunday church doesn't know. You know, all those Baptists and Catholics and Episcopalians and whatever who are off doing Easter and doing Christmas instead of the real thing, which is Passover, and we get sort of an intellectual pride about those things. The pathology of that is it can lead you into being a spiritual lone ranger. There's an aberration which says that the Sabbath resets on the new moon. So you have four seven-day cycles, and then you have a new moon where you got a couple of blank days, and then when you see the new moon, it starts off the first day again, or starts off Sabbath. I don't remember which one it starts off. And so the weekly Sabbath changes because they think it resets on the new moon. I think that's full of heifer dust, quite frankly. But they won't come to a messianic church like this, and God forbid they should go to a Sunday church, so they wind up off somewhere, a unit unto themselves, which means nobody ever knocks their corners off. Nice thing about being in a midrash like this is if I say something stupid, which I do frequently, I will be jumped on by about three or four people instantly, which is good. And it keeps me grounded and keeps everybody else grounded. And so that is a useful function that they don't get the benefit of. So we're all the way down to verse 14, maybe. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, I'm going to actually move on because Paul talks about this better later. This idea of who judges whom and so forth, he's going to talk about that in chapter 3, and he says it more clearly there. But in verse 14, you have the natural person versus the spiritual person. The natural person depends on reason. And as I have said many times, reason is a very good tool. I use it myself sometimes. But it is not the tool by which you discover truth. Revelation is the tool by which you discover truth. All reason can do is discern the things of the world because reason depends on observation. So you can observe plants growing, you can observe the stars moving in the sky, you can observe all sorts of things about nature. And reason is really good tool for observing nature and building bridges, categorizing things. I mean, it's a great tool. But those societies who discard God in favor of human reason all ultimately devolve into murder. Because the problem is human reason depends on the premises you start from. So if, for example, I start from the premise that there's no difference between men and women, then I reason that on the Olympics, anybody should be able to do anything because there's no difference. So the basis of my reasoning is fallacious because, in fact, men and women are different. There's nothing wrong with my logic. The problem is my starting premise.
And the starting premise of governments who use reason as a basis is that the human mind is all that you need to discover truth. Human mind, logic, and reason is all that you need to figure out truth, and you can organize a society based on reason. It doesn't work, ever. It's been tried lots of times, and it never works. And that's because the premise is wrong. The premise that they start from is that human reason is sufficient. It is not. What we need is the input of God, because without the input of God, we have no perspective. We have no idea what our purpose is. We have no idea what the purpose of the universe is. We have no idea about origins or anything like that. And so if you don't know those things and you try and reason those, you can wind up anywhere because your premises are faulty. His definition here in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 is that the natural man is different from the spiritual man and that the natural man, by definition, does not have the Spirit of God. Now, the Spirit of God can land on a natural man and change him. I'm not suggesting that natural men can't be converted. They certainly can't. Oh, one other thing. Verse 16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That was on an internet discussion board. It's been 20 years ago now. They would come back to this passage to use as authority for their interpretation of some other passage. I see this passage this way, and I have the mind of Christ, therefore. And I didn't see the passage the same way at all. Chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So Paul has got the Gentile franchise. So he's not giving them deep scripture-based arguments. He is simply coming to them with demonstrations of the power of the Spirit and preaching the gospel. And they don't know nothing. And notice that he says, oh, by the way, you still don't know nothing. Even though you do have the mind of Christ, you don't know nothing. And that's sort of the crux of what he's saying here. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So he's saying that your spiritual growth does not depend on us having planted or watered you, metaphorically. We came and I sowed the seed and Apollos watered the seed. But understand that any spiritual growth that you have is not from me and it's not from Apollos, it's from God. And the way I would describe this is I can take a rock, a little pebble, and I can take it out into my garden and I can till up my garden and I can very carefully plant that little rock, cover it over, 
and I can water it, and I can weed around it, and I can take really good care of that rock, and what's going to grow there? Nothing. Because it is not a seed. So what Paul is saying is, the seed that I have planted is not from me. The seed is the Word of God. That's the thing that has the life in it. I am simply the one who carried that seed to you, and I planted it. Paulus then came along and he nurtured and watered that seed, but again, if I had planted a stone, you would have gotten no fruit. But I didn't plant a stone, I planted the Word of God. Hence, you will get fruit from this, but that's not any glory to me, I am simply a worker in the field. It's God that put the life into the seed. God says that the one who sows the seed, the one who waters the seed, and all those kinds of things, get their reward. But they get their reward as servants. God is the one who makes the seed. The other side of that is I can take a good seed and I can lay it out on the asphalt and never do anything with it. And that seed will not grow either. So it is not that the one who gardens and the one who waters is not necessary. They are vital. But understand that they are not the ones that are responsible for the life that springs up. The seed is. That's what the parable of the sower is. Seed is the word of God. And God scattered his word carelessly. And some of it falls on the road and nothing happens to it. The birds come and take it and go away. Some of it falls on shallow soil where it springs up and then dies. Some of it falls among the weeds where it gets choked out. And then some of it is good. So without seed, there's no life. But also without husbandry, there is no life. Verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Yeshua Messiah. That goes back to my analogy of the seed. It doesn't matter how well you do the gardening. If the seed or the foundation is not sound, then nothing grows. He's using a building metaphor. I used an agricultural metaphor, but it's the same point. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. And the day in my translation is capitalized, so I am assuming we're talking about the day of the Lord. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So if you spend your time on spiritual dead ends and you don't build anything lasting, what will happen when the fire of the Lord comes is your works will be burned up. However, that does not mean that you get to go to hell. It simply means that you don't have any works. And we see in other places that God will reward us for the works that we do on earth. And so if your works are worthless, they will be consumed, but you will not. However, if your works survive through the fire, you will receive a reward because you have built well. I think he even says it up above, back in verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So the idea is, Paul planted, Apollos watered, 
Both of us were necessary to the growth of the Corinthian church, and we will each be rewarded by God for our labor. And he's saying the same thing down here where he's talking about building with a foundation. He's saying, I have built with good materials, materials that will not be destroyed by fire, but some of you may be building with materials that are going to be destroyed by fire. In either case, that doesn't mean you're going to hell. It simply means that when you get to the other side, you got no rewards. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Pause there a minute. We just finished going through Hebrews. You remember we talked in Hebrews about there being three orders of priesthood and three venues of sacrifice. You got the order according to Aaron, and the venue is the tabernacle or the temple on earth. You got the order according to Melchizedek, and the venue and the order of sacrifice are the venue is in heaven and the table of sacrifice is the blood of the Messiah. Okay? One member of that priesthood. Third, you've got the priesthood of all believers. And the venue for that one is the body of all believers. Here. And the table of sacrifice is the sacrifice of praise. And so what Paul is saying here is, you guys are a part of the third temple, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit as opposed to the temple of the Shekinah, Jehovah, which is the tabernacle, or the temple of the Son, Son, S-O-N, not S-U-N, the Son of God, which is in heaven, and will eventually be in the New Jerusalem. What he's saying is, you guys who are screwing with each other over teaching and so forth, you may be in danger of destroying the temple of God. The factionalism and the strife that is going on in the Corinthian church risks tearing that church apart. And you'll be split up into schisms and so forth, and people will drift away. So what he's saying is, by these schisms, what you're doing is you are potentially destroying the temple. And God will not be pleased with that. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he, who, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Messiah's, and Messiah is God's. As I said, God is not hostile to human wisdom. You've got a whole book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Deuteronomy, all of which talk about human wisdom. Human wisdom is good in its proper place, which is under the subordination to God. And what Paul is saying is you guys are depending on human wisdom instead of depending on the Spirit. And that will lead you astray. Let me give you an example. We talked when we were doing Proverbs. On the one hand, the wealth of a rich man is a 
strong refuge. On the other hand, the wealth of a rich man will not protect it. You have two proverbs that say what seem to be conflicting things. In the one case, it says wealth is a strong fortress. When it says wealth is no defense. Well, you need to look at circumstance. If you are living in Israel, who is walking more or less with God, then what wealth becomes is a buffer against life shocks. For example, if you get up in the morning and your battery is dead and your car won't start, if you got money in the bank, you just call up AAA and they come and they replace your battery and you give them 150 bucks or whatever it is and you drive off. No big deal. Wish it hadn't happened, but no big deal. If, on the other hand, you are living hand to mouth, you don't have the 150 bucks to call AAA, and that means that you're not going to be able to get to work that day, which means that you're going to be worse off, so things will just cascade on you. So under those circumstances, money in the bank is a defense. Good thing, nothing wrong with it. If, on the other hand, we are talking about Israel and apostasy, when you've got the whole Babylonian army coming across the northern border, your wealth will not save you. You're going into exile, bub. So those two proverbs are completely consistent, but they're talking about different things. So Paul here, when he's talking about wisdom, is talking about human wisdom used improperly as opposed to human wisdom used the way God wants it used. Now, starting in chapter 4, is sarcasm. This is sarcastic. If you don't recognize that, it will confuse you. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. That's not sarcastic. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Okay, so this is not sarcastic. So this is where I wanted to fetch up. Remember when we were talking about judgment earlier on? This is a better explanation. What Paul is saying here is, no human being can judge me. In fact, I am not even capable of judging myself. And this is parentheses now, because what I will do is I will give myself the benefit of every doubt. And I have a really good justifier. So every time I do something that somebody thinks is really scummy, which I do occasionally, I have a really good reason why I did it. And why in my case it's not bad. Why in my case it's okay. Why in my case God will understand and I'll be forgiven. And he probably will forgive me if I repent. What Paul is saying is God, when he looks upon you, doesn't look upon you through the filter of your own desires. He looks upon you as you actually are. And so God is the only one who is capable of judging you because he's the only one who truly knows you and knows what you're doing. You don't even know yourself that well. You're not capable of judging yourself either positively or negatively. So take that explanation and go back up to chapter 2 where I said, let's pause, and this is a better explanation of what he's talking about. Verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. And remember, we're talking about this in the context of strife in the church. So I suspect that you've probably got people who don't see things the way the ones that Paul saw them or the way Apollos saw them, and 
you're teaching false doctrine. And off we go. I told you the Baptist story, haven't I? One of my very favorite story. When our boys were going through their teenage rebellion, this is the church they came to. They became Baptists. They had a really good youth pastor here. So they would come to the Baptist church here on Sunday. And Kay would come more often than I did, but I would come about once a month just to see what was going on. And of course, much like Charlotte, they would catch all sorts of garbage about eating kosher and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we've been through all of this. Everybody in the church knew that our kids ate kosher and our kids did the feasts and tried to keep the Torah and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they harassed them as Baptists will do over those things. And one of the times when I came on Sunday, and the, the pastor was named Bob Buchanan, and he was a flamboyant pastor. You know, one of these guys that ranted and raved and waved his arms, and he was a good preacher. He was teaching on the book of Timothy. And he's going on and on, and he says, well, what Paul is saying here is, you're teaching false doctrine. And he's looked right at me and points right, I mean, he knew it, and I knew it. I mean, everybody else just thought he was being flamboyant because they didn't know who I was and didn't know what I believed. But you say, that's the kind of thing that's going on in this church. So Paul is saying, don't judge each other. You're not capable of doing it. The only one who's going to be capable of doing it rightly is the Lord, and you're going to have to wait until the day when he comes for that to happen. In the meantime, don't beat each other up. Verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what he's saying is, hey, dumb Gentiles, you don't know nothing. The only thing you know is what somebody gave you. So don't get puffed up in thinking that you have figured some of this out all by yourself because you haven't. Verse 8. Now, turn your sarcasm switch on. Starting in verse 8, this is sarcastic. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. So sarcasm off. So 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Messiah, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Messiah, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 
and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So there ends part one of the letter. We're going to change subjects in chapter five and go on some other things. These first four chapters deal with people who have gained a little bit of knowledge and have become puffed up and arrogant in that knowledge, especially where it differs from someone else's understanding.